Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned after the podcast for insights on elevating the human experience. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. Uh, not with me this week is our co-host, Kamika McCoy, who is at the uh, ONA, which uh, Jameson reminded me is that Online News Association. Yeah, that that would be correct. Oh, okay. So good for her. I think it's in New Orleans, right? It's not yep. a bad little work junket. Uh, so uh, we've got uh, two other fine coworkers helping fill the emotional gap created by the loss of Kamiko for a week. Uh, we've got, as just spoke, Jameson Fleming, our uh, chief of staff of the newsroom, who oversees a lot of the daily workflow uh, here at Adweek. Great to have you back, Jameson. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've also got back Sarah Jurdy, a staff writer who covers the media world uh, here at Adweek. Uh, Sarah, great to have you back on. Thanks for having me. We've got it, it's like a potpourri episode <laughs> this week. We've got like a bunch of kind of not not to say little things; they're all actually pretty big things. But uh, we're going to be jumping around just a little bit to some really cool stuff uh, that Adweek has coming and content that you can find on the site. But it won't just be self promotional. We're going to talk about some fun stuff, and then we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about sexy Colonel Sanders, the marketing trend of the week. Uh, but uh, but first, uh, let's uh, let's get into some fun news bits. So uh, it's probably no surprise to anybody that there's an election coming up. Uh, it's darn soon. It's like almost, uh, geez, we're almost a year out. We're definitely less than six months out, I think, from the first few primaries. Uh, and uh, we're recording this right after the first, I would say, real Democrat uh, debate uh, that the candidates had where like your actual front runners were all on stage together. Uh, Sarah, tell us about uh, kind of what what we're doing on the Adweek side to help cover the the marketing side of this and kind of what you're seeing in terms of what are the, the marketing angles of this uh, presidential election coming up next year? Yeah, so um, 2020 sure is coming, and it's coming fast. And here at Adweek, we have our own little spin on it. Um, I'm overseeing our 2020 coverage as we head into November. And so for Adweek, that means um, really covering the candidates as if they were brands. So that's taking a look at their messaging and their advertisements and seeing how that changes from now until November. Um, And we're really kicking off our project with a 2020 mini profiles on each of the candidates that's going to walk you through what their slogan looks like, what their logo looks like, and the materials on their campaign website, and what that suggests as them um, suggests for them as candidates and how voters might convey that. Um, so really kind of breaking it down like we would with any other major brand um, to see what that messaging looks like as we ramp up to 2020. Um, and like we do with other big events like the Super Bowl, we're going to 
also have a comprehensive tracker live that you can go and navigate through each of our stories and see what we're doing um, with opinion pieces, with larger at-large 2020 pieces, with breaking down each of the candidates. Um, So really excited to get this off the ground. You know, it feels like a big challenge with this kind of coverage, our kind of coverage, is that we do approach uh, politicians from the perspective of the marketing of the brands. I mean, it's a, we're a little more coming at it uh, somewhat sideways in the sense that we look at uh, kind of how, how their messages are conveyed. We're not really here to tell you whose message is right or wrong or who's selling it better, just so much as like how they're approaching it. And they're all very different. But do you, it, it feels like people understandably have a hard time separating those things, right? Like, like, what are you seeing in the sense of, of is there really a willingness and, a, and, you know, kind of an ability for people to have these conversations about candidates as a brand without letting their emotions about that candidate kind of overwhelm that? Or is that, I guess, just part of the brand? Yeah, well, I mean, I think so for the first Part of what we've been reporting, we've been talking to a lot of branding and marketing experts whose expertise really is in what the logo means, what a slogan means for a particular brand. Um, so we haven't had, at least at this point, too many political conversations. Um, but, you know, this is such an interesting election cycle. Even so far, these candidates are going up against a huge brand in the Make America Great Again brand and the Trump presidency. Um, so there's so much nuance to cover in 2020, especially for Adweek, talking to candidates and to experts to see what that looks like for them ahead in this race, um, how OTT is going to be even such a, a bigger part of their ad spend this year, what social media looks like for them. Um, so 2020 is definitely going to cross uh, the entire newsroom and include everyone and all of their individual beats. Um, so I definitely think that there's room and opportunity for us to cover 2020 and for our, our audience to engage with us. You know, when more advertisements start to be posted by these candidates, we'll put them out on social and ask everyone to vote themselves and see what they think of their advertisements and how that bleeds into their message as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I was thinking about these are uh, – this is a weird parallel to make, but uh, there's a scene in West Wing that I, I don't necessarily love. I'm not the biggest West Wing fan, um, but there was this scene where when President Bartlett was running for re-election and they had their signs out that said Bartlett for president and, like, one of the staffers got really angry and went up and, and with a marker and changed it to, like, Bartlett is president. <laughs> and and uh, I was thinking about that with Trump, you know, with the, the campaign has has pivoted to keep America great, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, like, even last night during the Democratic debate uh, the night before we recorded this uh, – you know, a lot of people are using the the KAG twenty twenty hashtag, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, critics obviously of of the Democrats, and so you know, it's interesting because uh, I did wonder is he going to lean, is it you know, make America great again for for all of its polarizingness and divisiveness, uh, you know, and, and just debate around when was America great? Like, what was the time period where America where America did not have yeah. massive problems? Uh, but, you know, that's it's interesting to see them evolving that brand rather than just kind of sticking with it. Uh, but I guess at the same time, if you just kept Make America Great Again for another <laughs> another campaign, you'd be implying that you did not succeed in making it great over the first four years, right? Right. I mean, it's a huge challenge to go up against that brand as a candidate, especially this kind of far out from November. I mean, how do you come up with a slogan and a brand that's sort of broad enough to appeal to mass voters, but also specific enough to energize people to come out and vote? Um, so it's, it's definitely challenging. But you asked earlier about you know, whether we're talking with folks about the branding and how that intersects with policy. And I think that's a big question going into 2020. You know, are voters 
going to care if the brand doesn't necessarily match the policy. And you can apply that to the 2016 election to see if, you know, if that's what voters thought and to see how that brand has progressed over time and whether that policy has informed that brand and vice versa. Um, so definitely a lot of layers to pick up for us. Well, you know, we, we, we think a lot back to 2008 being the first election where um, the where social media was a really huge component. Mm-hmm. And to your point about OTT, which is just the way we, you know, in the TV industry refers to streaming services uh, generally, uh, you know, is this going to be that year for OTT? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for candidates to break out from the crowd and um, to get really targeted audiences using OTT. Um, I'm not sure, kind of similar to the TV industry, whether um, they're really seeing the value as much as they should and really investing in OTT, that the dollars aren't necessarily moving fast enough to OTT. Um, But from what I'm hearing uh, from the campaigns and experts that I've talked to is that um, you're really able to get a much more targeted audience, um, especially in those key early voting states. And so I think as we get closer to November and as we see more candidates drop out and the field narrow a bit, we're going to see more, um, you know, more Hulu ads specifically come out of this. In, in the midterms in 2018, it was kind of interesting. Like my experience as someone who is basically on digital all day and doesn't have any linear television, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was I was seeing a very certain kind of ad for for specific kinds of candidates. Mm-hmm. And then I went over to my parents' house and they're watching CBS or whatever. And man, it is just a nonstop deluge of, you know, of Republican ads, honestly. Yeah. Of course, I, I'm in Alabama. I don't know. It's, your mileage may vary depending where you are. But it was just interesting that, you know, they, these folks know their audiences and they know and they man it was just every single ad break i asked my parents i'm like how many political ads are you seeing and they're like oh i mean it's every single ad in yeah. the ad breaks and you know and and very like all with a very similar message too you know of of really hitting the kind of older conservative voters yeah absolutely and one of the interesting things that i've talked about so far in the OTT strategy and what that looks like for 2020, a lot of the campaigns are modeling their OTT ads after linear TV ads. They're not modeling them after social ads, um, even though, you know, you can watch OTT on your phones or on the go. Um, So I think that's just an interesting perspective, too, that this is following the TV model, not necessarily the social model. So I'm going to put you both on the spot. We'll start with Jameson. it feels like right now the brand battle is most important between the Democratic candidates uh, because Trump's got his brand. You know, there's no real he does have a few uh, challengers, maybe one or two challengers uh, in the Republican primaries. But in general, I mean, it's a pretty safe bet that he's going to be reelected and he's kind of made his choice on branding. Who do you think has the best brand among the Democratic candidates in terms of not best as in like you agree with it most, but just best and they actually have one and it's clear and concise? Uh, Jameson, have you noticed anybody? I would think right now it's probably probably Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I think everybody kind of general, generally knows what she stands for. She started as, you know, back in the 2000s as, you know, she was going to be the, the, you know, politician who cracks down on financial services during the the, crisis, the financial crisis in, you know, 2008. And then she's just kind of built her platform over the last decade of being like the progressive candidate and the one that's not as far left as Sanders. And, you know, I think she generally appeals to, to more people on the left than, you know, I think she probably gets credit for, but she still kind of trails behind, you know, Sanders and Biden just because they have, 
you know, their core bases that, that, you know, really are passionate about them. But I think she's done the best job of just overall branding herself as what she is. I think everybody can probably talk about what she stands for more than almost any other candidate. It's interesting, too. I've only seen T-shirts for two Democratic candidates, uh, like in my organic life of just walking around, going to the farmer's market. Um, and it's uh, Warren and uh, Bernie. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Bernie ones, I think, like I joke about this, but I feel like some of those people have probably been wearing that shirt every week for the last few years. Like like they don't necessarily strike me as the kind of person who just ordered it uh, in the last few weeks uh, because they just got on the Bernie train. Uh, I think they're, they're somewhat loyalists. Um, but the Warren shirts, it's interesting to see. You know, I've seen Women for Warren is one that's come up a lot. Uh, there's uh, The Warren has a plan for that, right? Or, or has a policy for that, I think is a pretty popular mm-hmm. T-shirt. Uh, but yeah, that's it. Haven't seen. I, I certainly know Biden supporters, but I haven't seen a lot of merch, you know, popping up or people really expressing that. Sarah, what do you think? Who's who's kind of winning the brand battle for now among the Democrats? Well, I think you know Biden, Warren, and Sanders are all coming into this race with such name recognition. So I was really interested to see who among the you know other candidates was really going to break through the noise. And policy aside, just looking at marketing, I think Marion Williamson has done a really remarkable job in standing out. I mean, her colors are very different. She's using pink and purple. Um, I mean, what does she stand for beyond peace and love? I mean, you can argue that she hasn't really done a good job at communicating beyond that, uh, what that actually looks like. But I think if you were to line up you know, all the logos, which we do, you can see that she's really thought about um, what it means to stand out in the 2020 race. And it's kind of refreshing to see something that doesn't use the traditional stars or red, white, and blue, uh, a little something different. And I think, I mean, what Trump taught us in 2016 was if you're going to be an outsider among a field of candidates is you have to kind of establish yourself as one one brand very early. And also mm-hmm. to Yang's and Mayor Pete's credit, they – were complete outsiders who probably had no business ever getting even 1% in the polls. And here it's very clear, you know, what their brand message is. And now they're both sitting, you know, 4 or 5% looking to potentially gain as, you know, more people drop out of the polls or out of the race. Yeah, I feel like Yang is kind of a, a missed opportunity in a sense that he his platforms are really interesting, especially for us and for the industries we cover. You know, his like number one issue, if you go to his About Us page, is that he does not like AI and robots and machine learning and any technology that takes jobs. Uh, I mean, that's it's he has a huge platform policy on that, uh, which we're going to be covering more uh, soon. But the you know, it's literally like when you read his his little brief intro where most people are like, I'm a father with two kids. And he's just like, I hate AI. <laughs> and so it's an interesting niche. But, you know, I think so many people are just trying to get their name out that like Yang and, and uh, Pete Buttigieg, like they're kind of just their brand is their name. Um, and. It feels a bit like a missed opportunity because I feel like they could own something a little bigger than just who they are, uh, although I think both are pretty charismatic uh, and and have nuanced policy positions. But it's just, I think, if you're going to go for name recognition, that's a hard battle to win. We will uh, obviously stay on top of this. And Sarah, it's so great to have you on to kind of introduce this coverage. Encourage everyone to check it out. Check out the, what, what are we calling the political tracker? Um, Adweek 2020, so far, working title. 
All right. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, and all of our coverage, uh, if you look up Adweek Politics, you'll get all of our coverage in that space. And send us your tips. Uh, if you find anything good, any good new ads uh, from candidates, um, uh, you know, and maybe not even just ones running for president, but drop us a line at uh, podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk about a few other uh, big things we've got cooking. Today's episode is brought to you by Deloitte Digital. Stay tuned as Amelia Dunlop, Head of Customer Strategy and Applied Design, Deloitte Digital, explains how she and her team measure an organization's alignment to human values. All right, so uh, we just got done talking about politics and the major election coming up in 2020. Also, major issue, probably again, no surprise to anybody, is climate change. Uh, really one of the biggest issues uh, in my lifetime, I would say, uh, definitely one with the most impact and marketing brands, uh, all, all of the issues we cover, uh, they're involved in a lot more ways than I think people might realize or might appreciate. Obviously, this is a key issue for brands uh, that comes up in just about every conversation you have, um, whether they want it to or not. When you start talking about palm oil, or you start talking about uh, you know trying to working toward 100% recyclable products, among many other things. Uh, so to uh, to kind of further our coverage of that, uh, we have a, a really f- fascinating partnership. That Jameson, uh, tell us a bit about uh, about what we've got uh, coming in that space. Yeah. So next week, leading up to the UN Climate Summit, uh, there's initiative across over 200 newsrooms worldwide uh, called. Covering Climate Now. It's being organized by CJR. And basically the idea is all these news outlets are going to dedicate a week's worth of coverage to climate change and how it affects their readers or you know how it intersects with what they cover. And so for us, that's advertising, marketing, and media. And so every staff reporter at Adweek will be producing one or two stories next week Uh, just looking at how their beats intersect with climate change. And we'll be writing those stories online all next week. We'll be uh, including them in our newsletters. We're going to be bringing back former stories on social. So next week you'll see a lot of climate change coverage out of Adweek. And it's all part of this covering climate now to kind of you know, put to the forefront how climate change is affecting us now because for the most part when you read about climate change, you think about – you know, 10, 20, 50 years of what temperatures and what the world will look like. But there's not an emphasis right now on what's happening now with it. And so that's that's where this project comes from. Yeah, it's, you know, there's, I, I'd say one downside of the marketing world, uh, and this sounds oversimplifying, but it's an industry that has a hard time juggling multiple priorities at once, uh, like multiple super important topics at once. You see this at Can every year. It's like it's always like here's the one thing we're all talking about, whether it's, you know, diversity, inclusion, gender balance, things like that. And in and we kind of chided them, or I did at least, chided Can for really not having much in the way of climate change discussion this past year, despite having thousands of the biggest brands and marketers in the world all in one place. And we're just kind of trudging back through the same topics we've been talking about. All those topics are important. Uh, but I think it's been really interesting to me that a lot of time brands feel like they can only they can only really care about one thing at a time. <laughs> and, that's, and again, I mean, I'm oversimplifying. It's not like you can't have three or four different priorities. Um, but I've heard some more pushback on that lately as people are saying, you know, all these issues that we are passionate about as brands, they're big. These are important. 
but you know, if we don't have a planet to live on, <laughs> if we can't, if we can't breathe, uh, and our entire you know social structure falls apart, uh, not not a whole lot we could do with these other issues. Uh, so I really do feel like this coming year is going to be. Uh, the year that, uh, you know, that all this changes. Sarah, it feels like this also be re- being reflected in the media world. Uh, I think first of natural, National Geographic, uh, which has really been a, a, a leader on covering this conversation. What, what are you seeing and how, how media is kind of shifting to the, you know, we've got so many other stories we could be writing about every day, but do you see that, that publications and news outlets are, are kind of pivoting toward putting more emphasis on climate change? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're right. With the National Geographic, they committed, I believe it was last year, to um, doing away with that plastic wrap on their magazines. And they did that with a pretty splashy cover talking about climate change. Um, but, you know, a lot of national news organizations are also beefing up their um, their climate change Staffs, and I know the New York Times has made a really big push to make that a thriving staff. Um, but it comes at a challenging time for media. You know, we are being pulled in all sorts of directions. We have such a crazy news cycle, and we have 2020 coming up. Um, so, but we're definitely seeing, yes, like you mentioned, bigger thriving staffs at national news organizations like the Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's such, like you said, such an important topic. It makes you think, how can we not be writing about it every single day? But also knowing how challenged the media industry is right now, it's it's hard to parse through that. I think like City Lab is another organization that has done a good job of basically covering it in a way that it shows you how it's affecting your life now and what local municipalities are doing about it. And so from that aspect, it's really interesting to see a national, you know, site looking at, you know, what Louisville is doing to plant trees to, you know, combat climate change and make their city cooler. I think you bring up a great point in that a lot of this has to start at the local level. And if we don't have the local news organizations in a business position to report on these kinds of things like they need to be reporting to get that message out, it creates an issue. Not to be doom and gloom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and, uh, I want to plug uh, something CNN did. I'm I'm pulling it up to make sure I call it by the right thing. Um, I think I just Googled CNN climate change quiz. Uh, looks like it came out in April. Have either of you seen this? Uh, it's it's the headline is the most effective ways to curb climate change might surprise you, uh, and it's a quiz about your own kind of how you prioritize different aspects of your of your life like food and transportation and your community. Have you guys seen this at all? Yeah, I I think I took the quiz like a week or two ago when it went viral again, and it was pretty pretty eye opening. Yeah, yeah. I mean it. It had an impact on me, not in the like the usual way of existential dread, <laughs> like <laughs> like an actual how I think about. I mean, there are certain things I'm already doing, like, you know, use LED light bulbs. Like every time you replace a light bulb, replace it with an LED. It's a little expensive, but it lasts, what, 15 years and it uses very little energy. Those things are kind of easy. But, you know, seeing the actual impact of smart thermostats, which unlike an LED light bulb, they're going to run you 200 bucks, right? And so it's it's nice to know which of these is is having the most impact. Uh, it's it's good to see again. Like you only have so many choices you can make in a given day, or how you're going to spend your money, or how you're going to focus your political advocacy, things like that. It was kind of nice. I mean, that's just a great tool, and I was really impressed with CNN uh, for putting that together. And I've gone back to it. I've sent it to a bunch of people, and I really think that's the kind of example of how it's not it's not necessarily like. Um, subjective or biased in a specific way. It's not like it's telling you, you know, here's here's how you should feel about things. It's basically just saying, here's the, the 
you know, tons of carbon that would be removed if everyone did this. And mm-hmm. so it's just like, cool, that creates a currency that I can use to be like, all right, so maybe I should stress less about that and more about this other thing. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's a great feature. I love seeing when media uses their platform for things like that. I just want to say, too, I mean, media talks about, publishers talk all the time about wanting to reach a young audience. And I think that this is a really big opportunity to capture that audience. Um, I mean, I think we're at the point now where a lot of young people are starting to think about whether it's a um, you know good option to start a family to bring children into a world that might not be here uh, for a full lifetime, and so as we start caring more about these topics, um, I think publishers are going to find that they can reach a really niche audience in young people by covering the environment, and that applies too to twenty twenty candidates. I mean, you want to get young people involved, start talking about um, you know what the world is going to look like, not even a hundred years down the line, but ten when the sea level start rising and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, Jameson, where can uh, folks find our coverage of climate change? Yeah, we have a sustainability category on the website. Um, so it's agweek.com slash sustainability, I believe. Um, and we have a few stories on there just because, you know, over the you know last six months here, we've, you know, we've had a number of stories about it. But next next week, we'll be rolling out uh, in full, you know, multiple stories per day for the whole week. All right. And Jameson, you had one other fun project I wanted you to plug real quick. Uh, we have a new newsletter, or at least a rebooted and better than ever newsletter. Tell us about it. Yeah. So uh, we got rid of the Morning Digest, which used to come near inboxes if you're subscribed to it uh, each morning. But we've replaced it with First Things First, which uh, is just this kind of all-encompassing newsletter of everything that's happening in the industry. Um, we it's a written newsletter. It's just not a link dump. And so what we do is we kind of round up the stories, but we kind of explain the key insights out of them because we understand not everybody has the time to read four, you know, 800-word articles every morning. Uh, so we kind of pull out the key insights. We explain what you will get if you do want to click through and read the full story. We highlight the ad of the day um, because, you know, what's ad week if we're not highlighting the greatest creative every day? Um, and then the part that I'm kind of most excited about uh, is we have a career section in it uh, and a workplace strategy session uh, section. And so the idea is, you know, if you read the newsletter each morning, you're going to get something that you can take back to your team or you can kind of hold personally and say, oh, hey, this is how we should be uh, effectively using Slack or here's a new brainstorming technique that we have never considered and works. Um, or other things, just, you know, how to advocate yourself for a promotion, how to have, uh, you know, tough uh, conversations with clients about diversity and inclusion and, and things like that. So it's coming every morning, uh, 6.45 a.m. You can also find it on adweek.com as a digital story every morning. Um, so it's a, it's a, you know, pretty exciting new product that we've launched uh, that anybody can subscribe to. You don't have to be a subscriber. You just need to register with Adweek to, to get it. Yeah, I think the easiest way to find it is if you just Google Adweek newsletters, uh, you'll get the newsletters preferences, the newsletter preferences page. Uh, and like uh, like James was saying, you just log in and uh, or create an account if you haven't. It's free. And then uh, you can select which of our uh, many newsletters we have. But I love this one because no matter which niche of our coverage you're into, this one gives you a little bit of everything. And uh, and as the creative editor, thank you for making sure that the, the best creative is well represented in there. Of course. 
All right. Um, two quick plugs on my end. I know it feels like a plug of Palooza today, but man, we just got a lot of cool stuff going on. Um, we have launched a new award uh, called the Adweek Podcast of the Year Awards. It's uh, the Adweek Podcast of the Year Awards. You can get there uh, through adweek.com. You can find it uh, or podcastoftheyearawards.com or just Google it. Um, but it's uh, it's great. It's We've got 20 categories. This is for podcasts of, of pretty much any kind, although we do carve it out into categories that are a bit more in line with the folks uh, that we tend to cover and deal with most uh, covers. You know, there's best podcasts, uh, best branded podcasts, best podcasts hosted by uh, news publishers, uh, best podcasts hosted by agencies. Um, so real covers a gamut of categories that I think often aren't well represented. Um, and there really aren't that many podcast awards to begin with. The whole point of this, uh, this created by uh, by us on the news side, uh, specifically by me one day just being frustrated. I wanted to find cool new podcasts and there just aren't that many awards out there to, to see the ones that are worth listening to in the way that are, there are awards for so many other things. And so I sent a frustrated email out to a few people and just said, maybe we should just make our own. <laughs> and we did. Uh, so you can uh, check that out uh, and definitely keep an eye out for the winners. Um, but uh, if uh, if you have any podcasts that you want us to make sure we ping uh, with that, you can send us a note at podcast.adweek.com and I will reach out to them and let them know about this new program. Uh, we also have individual awards in there like uh, Podcast Executive of the Year, Podcast Innovator of the Year, and uh, Podcast Producer and Host and Editor of the Year. So again, folks who typically don't get a lot of props uh, publicly for all the work they put into it. Uh, so check that out or drop us a note at podcast.adweek.com if you have any thoughts. And uh, then we also have our Cincinnati Brand Stars list. Uh, as frequent listeners may know, uh, we occasionally, a few times a year, we go into different markets and we look at who are some of the personalities you should know in those different markets. Uh, the new one is Cincinnati, which is home of P&G, Procter & Gamble. But man, what a city. What a fascinating uh, time it's going through. Uh, Sarah, I just realized you are like the biggest advocate for Ohio. Yes. <laughs> going to my in, home. In the whole newsroom. Uh, and, and where are you Where are you from again? Akron? I'm from no. outside of Cleveland. Okay. So Geauga County, Teensy, Amish, Corn. Gotcha. Uh, Love. But, <laughs> I, you know, I just got back from Dayton recently, which is not very far from Cincinnati. And, uh, you know, Dayton's a fascinating place. But Cincinnati, man, just they're going through a really cool phase. What's happening mm -hmm. is that Procter & Gamble is uh, the big thing I kept hearing over and over is that there's obviously a big diaspora of people who leave Procter & Gamble, uh, not necessarily for any bad reasons, but they just want to go start something of their own. And a lot of time P&G is like, cool, we'll invest in it. We'll be your first investor. Um, and so we feature uh, on the Cincinnati Brand Stars a, a beauty company called See Me uh, Beauty that P&G is, is you know, basically funding. And it was started by three of their own employees. And then probably like 50% of the rest of that list are people who used to work at P&G. Uh, and through their networks and through the resources of P&G have created these really cool new brands. So check that out. I don't even have time to get into it because there's so much in there. But you can look up Cincinnati Brand Stars and find it. It's all live by the time this podcast comes out. Whew, okay, lots of plugs there. We're going to take one more break, and then we're going to talk sexy Colonel Sanders. All right, we're back uh, for one last vital conversation, the most important conversation, honestly. I mean, we've talked uh, the small stuff, climate change, politics. Uh, but let's get to the really important thing, which is that Colonel Sanders is sexy again. Um, he's, he's brought the sexy back. And what happened most recently, for those who missed it, there is now, or there will be, as of September 24th, 
there is a dating simulator video game on Steam called, I don't have the full name in front of me, but it's like, I love you, Colonel Sanders, a finger licking good dating simulator <laughs> is the full name. Uh, this is a, it is a real game uh, developed by Wyden and Kennedy and PSYOP is the production company that helped them make it uh, with KFC, of course. It looks very much like a Japanese-style dating simulator. This is a popular genre of games. Um, and you are a aspiring chef at a culinary school who, in addition to wanting to ace culinary school, also really wants to bang Colonel Sanders, who is your, co- your like, I guess, co-student, whatever. Like, luckily not your teacher. That was like, my, my concern going into the game. Uh, I did get a advanced copy of it, but I'm not allowed to talk about anything that was in it until the game goes live on the 24th. So, unfortunately, I can't tell you any of the fun twists and turns that it takes. Uh, but I can tell you that you've get, there's multiple characters that you run into and you decide who you want to be friends with and who you want to kind of screw over. And uh, and then if you play your cards right, you can become business partners with uh, Colonel Sanders. And if you really play your cards right, you can also date him because he's just so dreamy. And man, people went crazy over this. Like, Jameson, how would you describe the reaction online to the news that there would be a Colonel Sanders dating game? I think disbelief, uh, I think is probably the best way to sum it up, that everybody... This was just the the game that you didn't know you needed until it happened, and it's like people don't even need to play it. I think just knowing that it's going to exist because, like I said, it's not it's not available for download. It's going to be free, but it's not available for download until September twenty fourth. Didn't stop people from just freaking out and just going crazy with this. Um, so I took this as a moment because people were so confused about why KFC wants you dating Colonel Sanders and why they've turned him into a Japanese video game star. Um, and we took a step back and just reminded people, this is not the first sexy uh, iteration of Colonel Sanders. Sarah, were you aware that this was already a subgenre that KFC has slowly been building a sexy Absolutely repertoire? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> this was news to me. Uh, yeah. So um, I did a piece, uh, which you can look up, called uh, A Brief History of Sexy Colonel Sanders. And it's uh, this is something I've been noticing for years covering this brand over the past five, six years. We all know that they've got their celebrity colonels campaign, right? Um, Sarah, do you have a favorite celebrity colonel? You know, I sure don't. <laughs> I'm not as in tune, to be frank, as you are to the sexy colonels debacle. It, they don't have to be sexy. I mean, Rob Lowe is kind of middle of the road as the space colonel. Mm-hmm. We had Norm, Norm MacDonald, Jim Gaffigan. I mean, sexy uh, beasts right there. Uh, Reba McIntyre. Come on. She's a great one. I thought Reba was pretty good. Um, they have rotated through many, many, many uh, celebrities, uh, Jason Alexander and uh, just just so many. Uh, George Hamilton as the extra crispy colonel. Uh, Billy Zane even popped up as the golden colonel when they were doing some. And uh, and what's his name? Vincent Carthizer, like the guy from Mad Men who played yeah, Pete. Yeah, he was one. He was the uh, the Nashville hot colonel, which kind of ushered in the sexy colonel era. That was the first one. Uh, where he was like a heartthrob version of Colonel Sanders from Nashville, like a, as in like big bopper type singer. And then, um, and then I don't know if that just opened the floodgates at Wyden and Kennedy Portland, the agency that works with them. But uh, since then, they've really gone nuts. They did a romance novel, uh, which we covered at the time here on the podcast. We even had a, a reading from my friend Scott Monty, who has a fantastic voice. He read some of the more erotic passages from the romance novel. It's literally like, not to say a graphic, but I mean, woman in there has sex with Colonel Sanders like that. <laughs> so like they don't mess around. And the cover of that was this very kind of accurate looking Colonel Sanders head on top of a very muscular Colonel Sanders body holding a woman in his arms uh, while she was holding a chicken leg. 
And that that got some attention at the time. It was a Mother's Day promotion, which I thought was especially odd. They followed that up maybe two years later with another Mother's Day promotion, which uh, we can listen to a little bit here. It was the Chickendales, which was erotic dancing Colonel Sanders's. And it is 100% exactly what you think it is. Let's listen to just the very beginning of that piece. Oh, howdy, Mom. I hear you're the best mom in the world. Well, what do you think, Boris? So, yeah, you know, they went there. They had topless Colonel Sanders, very chiseled, uh, wearing their little, little, not a bow tie, what do you call it, like a bolo tie or whatever. And, uh, and they've all, and then of course they had this video game. Uh, you know, they, so they've, this is something they've been leaning into. I asked uh, the brand why, like why sexy Colonel Sanders? This is a real dude who's been dead for 40 years. It's, it's a little odd. They said that basically, you know, the, the CMO's response was for one, we've always thought he was sexy, which I'm like, okay, that's fine. Uh, and then she said, two, we're doing a ton of different, there's a, a WWE wrestling version of Colonel Sanders. You know, there's, we made a floaty out of Colonel Sanders. Like basically they were pretty candid about the fact that anything they can do to kind of inject him into culture, they will do. And sometimes that's sexy. You know, I think the Mother's Day stuff was making fun of how, you know, moms, it's actually kind of funny and cool now to acknowledge that your mom has a, you know, has a sexual side and which sounds creepy, but at the same time, hey, you know, people are people. And uh, and so each of these was them trying to kind of latch on to a different cultural milestone aspect thing. And they're doing that now with the dating game. Uh, and, you know, will it work? I don't know. But it's like each time they do this, they get a little more people, a, a few different niches talking about KFC, about Colonel Sanders. And especially with Popeye's blown up recently, it just goes to show like they can't really rest on their laurels and just be like, hey, everybody knows KFC. They're all going to shop here. Uh, you know, they, they kind of have to be doing something. So... Do you, too, think that this is helping the brand? I mean, I guess. I don't know. I mean, some, some of them are really good and some of them are really bad. So, I mean, they do so many that I think it kind of works in their favor that if they really bomb with one, just like a month later, they're going to have a new one anyway. Um so from that standpoint, I mean, it seems like an effective strategy. I mean, I liked when I was putting the newsletter together. Our editor for it, Monica Wamsley, uh, slacked me and was like, who calls Colonel Sanders sexy? I'm like, clearly the CMO does because that, that's her quote. Like, it's just it's just an interesting viewpoint they have of, of him. All right. Well, I encourage everyone to check out uh, our brief history of sexy Colonel Sanders. Let us know what you think of this uh, campaign. It's, we're at podcast at adweek.com. It's podcast at adweek.com. And we're out of time. Uh, Jameson, thanks so much for joining us again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And Sarah, always great to have you back. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Garner. All right. Uh, our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Chris Ahrens with production assistance from Josh Rios and edited by Lane McGibney. Uh, if you have not already, please leave us a review on ad- on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. Uh, you can reach the same time podcast at adweek.com. I'm David Griner for Adweek. We'll be back next week. Thank you.
Welcome to Elevating the Human Experience from Deloitte Digital. Businesses that stretch past customer experiences to create human experiences, experiences that include their workforce and partners, enjoy growth. This makes sense intuitively, but can you quantify human experiences? Amelia Dunlop, Head of Customer Strategy and Applied Design, Deloitte Digital, thinks so. Learn how she and her team developed an algorithm to do just that. A dear friend of mine once told me that organizations that have customer-obsessed as one of their five strategic pillars probably have a long way to go to truly understand what matters most to their customer. After all, none of us wake up in the morning and think of ourselves as the customer. We are mother, daughter, wife, sister, friend first. At Deloitte Digital, we wanted a new way to focus on the human experience, not just the customer experience. And that's why we felt some urgency to develop a new formula for growth, which combines the customer experience with the workforce experience and the partner experience and raises them all to the power of H, or what humans value. We call this equation the human experience quotient, which is a new source for growth for all of our organizations. After all, who wouldn't want to be treated just a little bit more human? Want to learn more about elevating the human experience? Visit DeloitteDigital.com slash US slash EHX for more insight.